Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce the Honorable Paul Chan, Financial Secretary for the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, a position he has held since 2017. The Financial Secretary has had a very long career in government, having previously served as a Secretary for Development from 2012 to 2017, and as a member of the Legislative Council from 2008 to 2012. Prior to entering public service, he spent many years in the accounting field as both a practitioner and a professor, and is a former president of the Hong Kong Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Financial Secretary, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andrew. Today, we're here to discuss the economic future of Hong Kong. Yeah. And I cannot imagine someone better positioned than you to discuss this incredibly challenging and fascinating topic. Oh, very kind of you. So to get started, for listeners a little bit less familiar with Hong Kong's administrative structure, would you mind sharing a brief description of your role as a financial secretary? Are your responsibilities comparable to that of a minister of finance, or are there any unique differences within a Hong Kong-specific context? Well, you know, the uh, administrative organization structure in Hong Kong is like this. The chief executive, uh, the top leaders of the territory, underpinning her three comparatively senior secretaries. The chief secretary for administration, financial secretary, and the uh, secretary for justice. And below these three secretaries, there are 13 bureaus. And I'm overseeing four of these bureaus plus the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. So uh, the four bureaus under my portfolio, Development Bureau, which is responsible for infrastructure development, land resources, public works. The Innovation and Technology Bureau, responsible for innovation and technology development. And then the uh, Commerce and Economic Development Bureau. And then the Financial Services and the Treasury Bureau. So looking at this portfolio, I would say that my key responsibility can be divided into three parts. Firstly, resources. So the monetary resources and the land resources are under my supervision and allocation. And then it comes to economic development, including innovation and technology development. And thirdly, it is financial stability. That is why the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is under my supervision and I'm also overseeing the exchange fund investments. So that basically describes my role in the government. It really sounds like a very large responsibility from which I'm sure you've had your hands full in recent years. Hong Kong has, has really, for a very long time, prided itself on running balanced budgets. Yep. Um, but this strategy seems to recently have shifted uh, as a result of the pandemic and I think even before that uh, during the year of social unrest. Mm. As a senior official who is responsible for managing Hong Kong's public finances, what has been your approach to conducting fiscal policy during this very challenging pandemic period? Well, first, we have to look at the uh, constitutional requirement. Actually, under Article uh, 107 of the Basic Law, it stipulates that uh, the Hong Kong SAR shall follow the principle of keeping expenditure within the limits of revenues in drawing up its budget and strive to achieve a fiscal balance, avoid deficits, and keep the budget commensurate with the growth rate of the GDP. So that is the constitutional responsibility. 
we have been very fortunate in terms of having budget surplus for a very long period. And actually before the social unrest, we have accumulated over 1100 billion in our fiscal reserve. And adding to that, another 700 billion in our exchange funds. So we have been in a very strong fiscal position. The last two years, globally, unforeseen in terms of disruption caused to the economy, caused to the life of the people because of the COVID situation. So our response in the past two years, apart from COVID, we also went through in 2019 and 2020 deep recession. So we thought we should be bold in terms of providing the much needed support to the people and to our economy, particularly the SMEs. So we incur a deficit to the order of 230 billion in the financial year 2020-2021. And this year, according to the budget announced last year, we expect another deficit to the order of 100 billion. In absolute terms, this is a huge deficit, but it is much needed. In terms of 2020-21, the deficit is only about 9% of our GDP. For this year, because of the better than expected economic development, better than expected income from the land sale, lease modification, as well as stamp duty revenue, we are expecting a much smaller deficit. So all in all, although our fiscal reserve as a result of these two successive deficits has come down a bit to the order of about 900 billion, but still very strong. Our philosophy is in the medium term, in terms of an economic cycle, we try to strive to achieve a balanced budget. But in the meantime, if there are volatility in the economy, no matter it is because of domestic situation or caused by external factors, we must be able to use this reserve to support our people and support our businesses. Well, thank you for that, uh, for that answer. Indeed, here at Fitch, you know, we, we track many different uh, sovereigns in our rating portfolio, and, and Hong Kong has, has certainly faced some fiscal challenges in the last two years. But one thing that differentiates Hong Kong is indeed that, that very large fiscal buffer, accumulated fiscal savings over, over many, many years. I think you uh, alluded to this in your previous answer, but I understand we're still going through the pandemic. And right now in Hong Kong, we can talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but what about the future uh, for fiscal policy? Once the health crisis subsides, uh, do you expect that the government will return to its history of long surpluses and balanced budgets? Or, or do you think there is a, uh, there's a potential change in philosophy towards uh, more expenditures and, and, and finding more uh, ways to support people through fiscal, fiscal spending? In the medium term, in the next five years, we expect a more or less balanced budget. Uh, on the one hand, uh, in 2021, although we expect an economic growth of about 6.4%, which was better than expected, but that's still below the uh, pre-pandemic level. So we, we have to work very hard to stimulate growth. And also over the past decade, we face another challenge that is our economic structure is not diversified enough. We have been very successful in terms of the financial services industry, uh, which now accounts for slightly above 23% of our GDP, but employ only about 7.5% of our workforce. For those people in the financial services sector, good years in the past few years, but in people in other sectors, uh, some people are suffering. 
So uh, in terms of bringing Hong Kong to the next stage, sustaining our further economic and social development, it is important for us to invest, to diversify our economy so that we can provide a more sustained economic growth as well as providing more quality jobs for our people. So in that sense, we will continue to invest heavily, particularly in the innovation and technology sector. Well, thank you. If you wouldn't mind one quick follow-up on this topic, which is, you know, housing is is really a long-standing issue that mm. is important for many, many people in yeah. the local community. What has been your strategy and what do you expect uh, the future strategy will hold in trying to resolve some of these long-standing housing shortages in Hong Kong? Yeah, the housing shortage is a, a deep-seated issue in Hong Kong we must tackle. We have to increase supply in terms of both subsidized housing, no matter it is for rental or for sale. Uh, we also need to increase supply for private housing. In terms of public subsidized housing, we have identified enough land to meet the supply target in the coming decade. The challenge is how to make it work and how to move faster. That requires streamlining internal procedures and also need to be creative in terms of delivery. Exploring the possibility of public-private partnership, in a sense, in helping speedily delivery of the housing production. In terms of private housing land supply, together with the lease modifications from the private sector, we are also confident in the coming decade we would be able to meet the targets. And in fact, uh, we should overshoot to a certain extent uh, in terms of private housing land supply. Internally, we have set up task forces looking into streamlining the process and also amending certain legislations to remove some of the bottlenecks in the process. The ordinance that are now under review, including the uh, town planning ordinance, including a lot of other related ordinances, it is quite hopeful that we will be able to announce findings of the initial review within this quarter and then move forward with the aim of cutting the red tapes, speeding up the process, enabling housing to reach the market faster. Okay, thank you. If you don't mind, I have one last fiscal policy question before Please. we pivot to some bigger picture issues. I guess this topic is really just specifically about the fiscal reserve. Mm. You know, Hong Kong has very little government debt, and as you mentioned earlier, has accumulated very large fiscal savings. Uh, yep. They have come down, yep. but there's still, I th think in our estimates, around 25 to 30% of GDP. N now, some in the community view this kind of as a rainy day fund for future crises to use during, for example, a global pandemic. And others believe uh, perhaps that so the accumulated savings should be used for social welfare and uh, to help solve some of Hong Kong's pressing needs, such as housing. What, in your philosophy, is the purpose of Hong Kong's fiscal reserve? Well, the fiscal reserve serves two main purposes. One is to provide a buffer. As you rightly point mm -hmm. out, it provides a buffer to enable us to tackle the rainy days, for us to tackle unforeseen circumstances like the COVID situation. Well, it is quite telling, you know, uh, in the COVID situation, we have set up an anti-epidemic relief fund. Up till now, we have spent about $300 billion, which is about 12% of our GDP, huge sum. And we are still in the middle of this pandemic situation. 
So I think have enough physical buffer is important for us. At the end of the day, we are a small open economy. We are subject to a lot of uh, external uncertainties. Not to mention the COVID situation, one lingering risk that we have to watch out is the Sino-US tension and the consequential impact on trade, on capital market, on money flow. So I think having strong physical reserve to enable us to tackle this situation is important. And that is also important to safeguard our financial stability. As you know, the Hong Kong dollar is linked to the US dollar. And this linked exchange rate system is important to Hong Kong because under the basic law, we are a completely open and free economy. Money coming in, going out freely. This is guaranteed under the basic law. We must be able to deliver on the promise. In the past two years, we've gone through some difficulties, including the uh, social violence back in 2019. Some anxiety in the public when we face those kind of situations. Strong physical buffer is important for us. And the surplus also serves another purpose, that is to enable us to have a stable stream of investment income to help address the challenge of the aging population. That is one thing we should not overlook because the pace of aging is real fast. That requires a lot of investment. That also requires the government to have the means to take good care of those elderly people who have worked and contribute a lot to Hong Kong's prosperity. Well, thank you. I think with that uh, in mind, maybe it's a good moment for us to pivot to talking about Hong Kong's economy and your outlook for the economy this year. Yeah. In, in 2021, I think you just said at the beginning that you expect growth of about 6.4%, yeah. which is a pretty significant rebound after two years of recession. Uh, but now we're dealing with a new challenge here uh, in the local community after the detection mm -hmm. of the Omicron and other variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus since early January, which has led to some new restrictions on schools and many other social venues such as gyms and restaurants. Uh, what is your outlook for Hong Kong's economy against the backdrop of these recent developments and maybe more broadly how you see the risks and opportunities for Hong Kong's economy this year? Overall, this year, we have to look at our domestic situation as well as the global situation. Most of the analysts at the moment, still forecast the global economy, economic outlook is pretty positive. Should be on the track of positive growth. With the COVID situation, although developing in developed countries, but for countries like the United Kingdom, things seem to be getting stabilized. If the COVID situation is pretty much under control, the trade flow will resume. The regional trade will increase. That will provide support to our export which is important in terms of providing economic growth in Hong Kong. Domestic consumption before the recent outbreak of Omicron was pretty positive. Yeah, last year, the economic growth was about 6.4%. Unemployment rate come down from the height of 7.2% at the beginning of last year to 3.9% at the close of the year. Inflation is pretty much under control. So the situation was quite good. The recent outbreak, the government has been very decisive in terms of imposing social distancing measures to try to contain the situation and to cut the further infection to the extent possible. I remain prudently optimistic. 
about the economic outlook of Hong Kong. Assuming that this turn of uh, outbreak would be able to stop in a comparatively short period of time, I think we are very well placed on the growth track. The exact GDP growth this year, we are still doing assessments and will be announced uh, in the budget to be delivered next month. But by and large, we should be on the positive growth track. And the trend growth in the coming five years, possibly around 3%, which is consistent with our trend growth before the COVID situation. Well, thank you. I think we all await your, your annual forecast at, during the, the budgeting speech. And so we'll, we'll, we'll take note of that once you guys have finalized your assessment. Yeah, thank you. I guess uh, on this topic, one bigger picture question is about the restrictions, particularly on travel. You know, Hong Kong has long been viewed by the world as a gateway to China. And within China, Hong Kong has long been viewed as a gateway to the West. Um, but since 2020, Hong Kong's borders have effectively been closed for most international travelers uh, due to flight bans and, and very long quarantine requirements. And I know there are plans in the works, but travel between Hong Kong and the mainland has also been highly restricted during this period as well. I think we can all agree that these measures have, have served Hong Kong very well from a public health uh, standpoint. I think that, that goes without saying. Uh, but it certainly has come at the expense of the city's, uh, at least in, in many people's views, increasing isolation from the rest of the world. I guess the question for you is, if the status quo continues for another one or two years more, uh, do you think this could jeopardize Hong Kong's role as a gateway to China, as well as perhaps its economic and, and cultural vibrancy? The status quo situation won't last for another one or two years. I don't think so. I think we have come to a point to determine our priorities in terms of fighting the pandemic and resumption in traveling. The short-term priority, understandably, is to try to reopen the border with the mainland. This is important from economic standpoint as well as humanitarian standpoint. We were almost there if not for the current outbreak of the Omicron. We have been working very closely with mainland authorities and reached understanding as to the criteria upon which the border could be reopened. We could have reopened it at the beginning of this year, if not for the recent outbreak. So the, the roadmap is to ally our practices in terms of fighting the pandemic with those of the mainland to the extent possible to achieve resumption in traveling with the mainland, and then work to open our border with the international community. In order to enable us to do this, we have to increase the vaccination rate among our people. We have seen some positive progress in the recent days. People having two jabs over 70%, and we have seen people getting more willing to get their jabs because of the vaccination passport or vaccination bubble that we have announced. Also, we have watching very carefully the development in, in the drug to cope with the COVID situation. So once we are able to resume the border with the mainland and we've enhanced vaccination and hopefully also coming onto the market, better drugs to treat COVID, I think we are hopeful that the international border would be able to open. Because at the end of the day, we are a small open economy. The ability to open our border with the international community is important. We are the gateway to the mainland. We are the bridge between the West 
and the mainland, not just the capital market, but also in terms of business activities, business travels. And in fact, if I may go back a little bit, the importance of re resumption in traveling with the mainland in the short term is a lot of companies using Hong Kong as their regional base is eyeing on the access to the mainland market and the ease of access to the mainland cities. That's why our short-term priority must be uh, reopening with the mainland. Well, thank you for that. And just to clarify, yeah. so if I try to summarize and interpret your statements just now, really the strategy now is, is to buy time for more vaccinations uh, to proceed in Hong Kong and also potentially for more medical breakthroughs. Is that a fair summary of of the strategy before you can uh, reopen to the international borders as well? The development in drugs is secondary to the vaccination. Vaccination is the most important, Okay, I would say. Yeah, because with better vaccination, that will build a shield to protect our people. I think with that in mind, I'd like to pivot to a point that you made a little bit earlier on in our discussion, which is about some of the risks, uh, including geopolitical risks uh -huh. uh, that uh, we face uh, both in Asia and around the world, uh, you know, it is becoming apparent uh, the longer that time passes that the geopolitical frictions between China and several Western countries, including the USA, are not going to disappear anytime soon. And I think I'm seeing you nod here, so I think it sounds like you agree with that statement. Some observers in the market see this as an opportunity for Hong Kong to cement its role as the offshore funding center for mainland Chinese firms in place of other venues such as New York. Mm -hmm. At the same time, others argue that geopolitical tensions are altering Hong Kong's cosmopolitan business environment, which could also pose a challenge for Hong Kong's growth model over the next decade or so. For example, I think if you look at the last census that your government produced, they do show that Hong Kong's, the use of Hong Kong as a regional headquarters for foreign multinational firms has been on a, a slow decline for a few years. Now, counterbalancing that is the fact that mainland firms are increasingly using uh, Hong Kong as a regional headquarters. So with all these, a little bit of data in mind, and some of this bigger picture perspective about geopolitics. Do you foresee Hong Kong's economy evolving or how do you see Hong Kong's economy evolving and adapting to these changing circumstances, uh, particularly among what we, I think, both expect to be protracted geopolitical tensions? Well, there are challenges and opportunities. Yes, under though this uh, geopolitical situation, uh, we are facing challenge in terms of uh, increased volatility in the capital markets. At times, there may be worries caused by, say, for example, uh, certain so-called sanctions. This we have to live with it and also to get ourselves prepared in terms of the ability to cope with those volatility. But the core strength of Hong Kong our core competitiveness remain unchanged, I would argue. First and foremost, the one country, two systems arrangement, which is not just important to Hong Kong, but it's also important to the country. And it is written as part of the country's development strategies. And under the one country, two system, our core attraction to a lot of foreign business is the common law system, the rule of law, the independent judiciary, as well as the FIFO of capital, talent, information, and goods. These core strengths are still here. Looking at the statistics, the number of 
foreign and mainland enterprises in Hong Kong remain more or less at 9,000 plus companies and about 40% of them using Hong Kong as the regional headquarters or regional offices. We are keenly aware of the speculations and some anxieties in the market at different points because of the geopolitical situation. But at the same time, if you look at our core competitiveness and also the sentiment expressed by the business sector, say, for example, if I may cite a statement by the MCHAM, the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, their statement, in their statement, they still consider Hong Kong as a critical and vibrant facilitator of trade and financial flow between China and the rest of the world. So for us here, I think the real question to ask, we ask ourselves is, what is our value proposition for foreign businesses? The one country, two system is the framework. And in terms of business opportunity, it must be Hong Kong's role in the mainland, in the country's overall development plan. So under the 14 five-year plan, Hong Kong has been given a number of roles, including the IFC, the International Innovation and Technology Center status, trade and logistic, aviation. These status are reaffirmed by the central government. And the GBA is the most convenient access that Hong Kong to tap, Hong Kong be able to tap the, the vast potentials on the mainland. And for foreign business working with us, these huge opportunities are available to them. Financial services is a clear winner in this respect. The cross-boundary wealth management connect between the GBA cities is just one example. Uh, recently, we have seen global financial institutions expanding their footprint in Hong Kong, employing more people, getting ready to tap that uh, opportunities. The challenge faced by mainland enterprises list on the U.S. stock exchange, in a way, also shed light on another opportunities for Hong Kong. And I think we are we stand ready and we are able to provide the needed platform for those mainland enterprises who are still interested in getting international capital. We are very confident in this respect. And in terms of innovation and technology, given our intellectual property protection regime, our legal protection, and our synergy in terms of working with cities like Shenzhen, I think we are also very well placed in terms of attracting foreign tech companies, drug companies to come to Hong Kong to work with us to tap that opportunity. Well, thank you. Just to clarify for those of us in the audience that may not be familiar with all the acronyms, the, the GBA stands for the Greater Bay Area. And please correct me, Financial Secretary, if I'm wrong. It's a, a city cluster initiative yeah. aiming to connect economically uh, Hong Kong with many of the cities nearby in Guangdong province. And so you think that this initiative uh, will help unlock some of Hong Kong's uh, economic potential over the next several years? Is that right? Yes. The Greater Bay Area comprising nine cities on the mainland in the Pearl River Delta, plus Hong Kong and Macau. So in terms of population, is 86 million. Hong Kong alone, only about 7.2 million. So huge domestic market. In terms of GDP, it is about 1.7 trillion US dollar. If you rank it in the global uh, GDP ranking table, it would rank number nine. Also, this is an area in the mainland most open to, to the outside world and most affluent, have a lot of purchasing power. So uh, in the Hong Kong situation, this is just neighboring hindrance for us to tap. Under the 14-5-year plan, the national strategy, development strategy is 
what we call a dual circulation strategy. Domestic circulation is the mainstay because in face of the geopolitical challenge and taking into consideration the economic growth over the past four decades on the mainland, they have a large middle class at the moment, about 400 million people. And it is estimated to grow to about 800 million in the next two decades. Huge purchasing power. In that sense, uh, Hong Kong can get involved in this domestic circulation, not just for selling our goods, but also in terms of helping foreign business, foreign manufacturers to tap this market. This is domestic circulation. And the mainland's policy also stress on external circulation. And these two would interact together to help the mainland to achieve a more balanced growth. So they stress on continuation of opening up, continuation of reform. And in terms of opening up, they stress on two-way open up. So not just attracting foreign capitals going into the mainland, but also encouraging mainland enterprises going global. So in that sense, Hong Kong would be able to play a very important role, not just facilitation of the capital flow, but also as the risk managers for mainland companies going global, uh, providing professional services, breaching the international standards and the mainland standards. The way we see it, tremendous opportunities. Even for the financial services area, the mainland have their pledge to reach carbon neutrality in 2060, the peak of carbon emission in 2030, both targets. And in the process, they need a lot of investments. And being an international financial center, positioning us, positioning ourselves as the green and sustainable finance hub, we would be able to bridge this too in terms of standard, in terms of facilitating capital flows and facilitating foreign investments to the real economy transition. Well, thank you very much. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I have one more question, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. With the mainland taking a more active role in Hong Kong's political affairs in recent years, uh, and in light of the State Council's recent white paper on Hong Kong's future development under One Country, Two Systems, as well as I think some of the recent institutional changes here in Hong Kong. How do you foresee Hong Kong's governance model and institutions evolving going forward? We have gone through a very difficult decade. You have seen uh, filibustering in the Legislative Council storing a lot of actions and also confrontations in the community, which is quite divisive. So the enactment of national security law after the social violence back in 2019 is very much needed. And it has proved to be effective to restore Hong Kong to stability and law and order within a short period of time. The recent changes to the electoral system is to ensure patriots administering Hong Kong, uh, to put Hong Kong back on track, to enable Hong Kong to not to repeat the previous political chaos, political impasse. The recent election of the Legislative Council has shed some light in the sense that the current composition of the legislature are people from more varied and diverse background, better political inclusiveness. So that diversity 
would be able to bring, on the one hand, continuing monitoring, check and balance against the administration. But on the other hand, a more united objective of pushing ahead social and economic development, focusing our energies in tackling certain deep-seated issues, as you rightly pointed out previously, the land and housing, the poverty gap. So these are areas that we need to, to unite the energy of the community to work together to tackle. Uh, with the improvement to the electoral system, the executive-led governance model would be more apparent. We are still subject to the scrutiny and check and balance of the legislature, but it is not just political confrontation, but also trying to put our energy together to find solutions for Hong Kong. So I'm optimistic and positive about the future development of Hong Kong. I hope we can set aside the differences in the past and concentrate on our energy to improve the livelihood of the people and allow us time to tackle these issues and move the community forward. I think the democratic development has to be also fitting to local circumstances. The democratic development in Hong Kong is guaranteed in the basic law. In longer run, this would still be realized. According to our situation, on also fitting the pace of development locally. Thank you very much, Financial Secretary, for your time this morning. I'm very grateful that we had the opportunity to share this with our broader community. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and do the interview with uh, Fitch. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.